Good morning. Uh, thank you. Um, I am uh, I'm Andy, for some of you who may not know me, I'm Pastor Scott's son. And um, Pastor Scott is here in the building, but he is doing something pretty remarkable. He's in Sunday school, teaching our kids. So uh, they're getting, they're getting uh, some hang time with Pastor Scott, and uh, I'll be pinch hitting here this morning. So uh, what, um, what we want to do as we get prepared this morning to kind of just break down God's word is sort of step back. As, as, as you know, if you've been attending here for any length of time, uh, typically when I do preach, uh, I've been preaching out of the book of Jeremiah. But this morning, we're going to kind of break from that um, schedule, if you will. And we're going to step back and sort of consider the reality that at this particular Sunday is what is often called Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is um, the beginning of what we would call the Passion Week. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Um, probably n- when you were young, maybe Christmas took greater precedent in terms of like holy days of observation because with Christmas comes gifts and a whole bunch of other things. But in, in consideration of what the scriptures would say would be probably one of the most, if not, I would say, I would argue it's actually the most significant day in the history of humanity is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to preach... Uh, this morning on sort of that opening scene of Palm Sunday and the beginning of Passion Week. And then next week, Pastor Scott will be preaching on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So Good Friday is going to be sprinkled in there. If you can come and attend, great. Uh, But that's kind of what we have lined up. So um, what I want to do is just kind of open with a word of prayer, just ask the Holy Spirit to teach us, and then we're going to kind of explore uh, God's word here. So Lord, we come to you this morning. God, it's just been already a blessing to be here with your people, Lord, to sing your praises. And so, God, I pray even now you'd open our hearts and our minds, that, God, you'd instruct us from your word and help us to see the truth uh, clearly, Lord, that it would be applied to our hearts specifically, uh, that, God, our faith would be strengthened, and, Lord, our walk with you would flourish as we abide in the vine. Um, So, Lord, please open our understanding. Uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> by way of context, I think it's important before we jump into the specifics of Scripture to kind of z- step back a little bit and ask ourselves sort of what was happening and what was going on in the flow of history uh, as we begin to think about what was happening in this very unique moment in time. When you read through the Old Testament, does anybody know the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi, the Italian prophet. So we have Malachi. So Malachi is the last of the, of the canon of the Old Testament. And then we, if you're just reading your Bible, you would flip to the next page, and you're in Matthew chapter 1. Does anybody know roughly how much time passed between the end of Malachi and Matthew chapter 1? 400 years. Fantastic. So let's just think about this. 400 years of what is considered, and I'm going to just use a term that you may come across if you do any reading on this period, they call it the intertestamental, sounds like an organ in your body, the intertestamental period. It's this 400 years in which there is no scripture given, but time continues to progress. As you look at the flow of history, we know that the children of Israel 
we're under the kingdom. We had David, then we had Solomon, then this kingdom split. And then there was roughly 400 years of history there. They go through exile, they go to Babylon, they come back, they rebuild Jerusalem, and then there's just 400 years of silence. Now, the reason I bring this up is because a lot has happened in that 400 years that we don't have recorded in Scripture, but nonetheless has a bearing on the thinking and on the attitudes and on the perspective of the people of God, the children of Israel. What I'm trying to convey to you is the most important person in the history of humanity. His life hinged upon the week that we're literally going to be exploring right now. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God gave us the history, and then we have thousands of years of human history, and then Jesus comes onto the scene. Do you know how many chapters in the gospel account is committed to the explanation or the record of Jesus' birth? Four. Two in Matthew and two in Luke. Mark doesn't even address the birth of Jesus and neither does the Gospel of John. Four chapters. You know how many chapters are in the Gospels altogether? 89. If you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you add up all of their Gospels, there's 89 total chapters, which is all we have of the eyewitness record inspired by the Holy Spirit of the life of Jesus, the Son of God. And of those 89, four are devoted to his birth. Question, how many are devoted to the final week of his life prior to crucifixion and resurrection? 20, we have 20. We have 20, we have 21, we have 21 here, we have 22, we have 22, we have 23. 15, yeah, the number is 27. 27 chapters are devoted to a week of Jesus' life. How many years did Jesus live? Most people think about 33. How many weeks is 33 years? Anybody know that I do like sort of accounting work for a living? This is probably why you're like, these are really irrelevant facts. But I find them really interesting. So if Jesus lived 33 years, that's 52 weeks in a year, that's 1,716 weeks. His ministry years were the last three. And if you do that, that's 156 weeks. I want you to think about what I'm trying to convey to you. Of Jesus' entire life, if we focus on one week, that is .000582% of his entire life. If we focus on just the years of his ministry, it's .00641%. What I'm conveying to you is, if you were to step back from a bird's eye view of the history of Jesus' life, there's years where the record of Scripture gives us little glimpses of what Jesus did and said. And then all of a sudden, there's this giant flaming signal of importance because the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want to focus on this one week with roughly 30% of everything that's recorded about Jesus' life. If you were measuring significance, I would correlate that if less than 1% of his entire life is given 30% of the record of his life, the Holy Spirit is saying, this is the most important week. That was my statistical analysis of the New Testament. That's all I have for today. No, I'm kidding. It sounds accurate. Yeah, it does. Thank you. At least I haven't failed yet. Um, 
It's the significance of it all. Jesus is the most important man, and my desire is to get us to start to think about this most important week. And as we do that, let's understand that in John's gospel, or John's record of this, uh, this is considered the triumphal entry of Jesus. If you have a Bible with a heading on this particular moment in Jesus' life, which is considered the beginning of Passion Week, oftentimes the heading in your Bible will say the triumphal entry of Jesus. This record, uh, this event is recorded by all four gospel writers. Um, this isn't always the case when you read your New Testament. Oftentimes Matthew, Mark, and Luke record things in a more chronological way and fairly consistent in their telling of Jesus' life. John wrote his gospel much later and kind of added in very unique perspective that the other three often didn't capture. But in this particular moment, all four of the gospel writers record these events uh, for our consideration. So that gives us a, a, a pick of any four that we can launch from. There's a lot of similarities between all of them. I'm going to give you the four references. You can jot them down. Uh, I strongly encourage you to make a comprehensive study of this week of Jesus' life this week. You can literally read day by day what happened on Sunday, what happened on Monday, what happened on Tuesday, all the way through to resurrection. Uh, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pick from these. But uh, Matthew records the triumphal entry of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Mark records it in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Luke records this in Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 38. And then John begins his narrative, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 18. For our consideration, I'm going to be using the Gospel of John primarily as the, as the basis for our exploration of this event. And the reason I'm using John is because of John's writings of all the Gospel writers, John devotes only almost half of his entire Gospel account to this final week of Jesus' life. He clearly focuses in the most. And I also want to use John's letter, or John's gospel, uh, because I think John captures the progression of Jesus' own purpose behind this week. Thinking of the flow of history, thinking of the fact that now Jesus, the Son of God, has come onto the scene, we know that Jesus, of his own record, pivoted his ministry on the significance of this week. If you will, start with me in John chapter 2. I'm going to just kind of sprinkle through a few scriptures to kind of show us that Jesus himself, uh, really from his childhood we know, right? We know that Jesus was in the temple at the age of 12, debating with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and when his parents finally found him, his answer to the question, why did you do this and why did you abandon us? His answer was, don't you know I must be about my father's business. Jesus was self-aware. He knew the purpose and the destiny that he had. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. He begins his public ministry. And we have the wedding at Cana. It's his first miracle. And in John chapter 2, uh, it says on the third day, verse 1, there was a wedding at the Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. In verse 4, and Jesus said to her, <clears throat> and he said this respectfully, he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His response to his mom asking him to perform a miracle is, hey, my hour has not come. This is Jesus 
indicating to us even here at the very beginning of his public ministry that he was looking forward to a distinct moment in time. He references his final week as an hour. It's more of a reference of an event than less of a reference to time. And Jesus is saying it's not the length of an hour. It's not a 60-minute increment. It's a moment. It's an event. It's the moment that history will pivot forever. And so Jesus is like, this isn't that moment, Mom. So I'm not here to start to announce myself in that way to the world. It's not time. You go with me as well to John, <clears throat> excuse me, John chapter 7. Jesus says these same, uh, this, the record of scripture tells us the same thing. Jesus at the Feast of Booths a little bit later in his ministry, he performs miracles. He's speaking and preaching publicly. And we see in John chapter 7, Starting in verse 25, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Excuse me, kill. Kill. And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? We'll explore this idea. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So verse 28, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, because his, uh, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Again, the response of the people around him was a response that Jesus was blaspheming. They wanted to arrest him, and ultimately they want to kill him, as we know. And in this specific moment, the writer, John, perceives they wanted to arrest him, and they could not because his hour had not yet come. This theme is carried forward again in John chapter 8. And I'm belaboring the point because we're going to see a pivot in Jesus' own words. John chapter 8, again, this idea of them wanting to arrest Jesus. In verse 19, they said to him, therefore, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I won't go through and continue to read all of the different references, but you'll, you'll see on your own if you read through Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 16, again in Matthew chapter 17, that after Jesus performed a miracle, he told those to whom he performed the miracle, don't tell anybody. And when we read the Gospels, that might seem very counterintuitive. Like, why would Jesus, who's come to save the world, not want people to know that he's Jesus who's come to save the world? Like, why would he perform the miracle and do this amazing thing, and everybody who just witnessed it's like freaking out because it's a supernatural experience, and they're like, this is, this is God, and Jesus' response is, don't tell anybody. Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John up onto the mount of what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is transformed before them. As they see God in his glory, his humanity is pulled back, and the true reality of Jesus as God is visibly displayed in front of them. They fall on their face in awe of the fact that they are in the majesty of the presence of God. And as they're coming down off the mountain, Jesus turns to them and says, hey, don't tell anybody about this right now. Just keep this between the three of us, the four of us. Again, why? Why is this the reality? Why has Jesus made it such that as he's living out the early stages of his life, he's kind of tamping down 
this, this idea around him that he is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the savior of the nation of Israel. And the reason for this, I think, is, is actually plain in the text. And the reason why I referenced the fact that there was this long 400-year delay between the Old and the New Testament is it forces us to consider Jesus in the context by which he arrived. He arrived and his ministry was almost exclusively to a Jewish audience. He was speaking to, and he came primarily to the Jews first. And they would understand him from the context of their scriptures, the Old Testament. And if you are familiar with some of the things that anchored the Jewish expectation, one of those things, and the primary thing for them, was that when, when David was king, right, the second king of Israel, Saul was sort of a bad choice. Whoops, God's like, not a man after my own heart. Saul's you know, removed from being king. David is anointed, and we know David's a, God after, a man after God's own heart. And God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel near the end of his life. And he said, I will always, uh, in, in paraphrase, God's word is, I will make a covenant that there will always be someone of your lineage sitting upon the throne of Israel. There will be a Davidic promise or a Davidic covenant, if you will, named after David in honor of his faithfulness to the Lord. The understanding of the children of Israel, bear with me on this, but the understanding of the children of Israel is that that promise would be fulfilled in a future time. Now, through every evolution of their history, especially when they were under persecution or being oppressed, they clung to this hope so dearly that someday, some point in time, God would fulfill this promise and a deliverer would come who would raise them back up to prominence as they were in the days of David. And the point I'm making is almost exclusively their understanding of this king of David was political. It was primarily political. It was primary, primarily understood from a national perspective. They viewed it as God is going to elevate us as a nation once again. We're going to be glorious. We're going to be the shining light of God to the world. And that's how they understood it. And so they continued to fan into flame this hope and expectation throughout that entire 400-year period in which there was silence from God. There were various political forces that rose and fell during that time, but as you know, when we get to Jesus' life, Rome is the ruling power. And Rome is occupying Jewish territory. They were a vassal state. They owed taxes to the government. They were not independent completely. They were occupied by Roman occupation. And this infuriated many of the Jews. They didn't love this reality. Some learned to live with it, but the majority of them didn't like it. And so they were longing for and hoping for a time when God would send this deliverer to liberate them from Roman occupation. That's the color and the context of the thinking of the people as Jesus comes onto the scene. They're looking for someone to throw Rome off, give us our freedom, give us our independence, give us our national glory back. Let us restore worship in the temple. Let us be a great nation once again. And Jesus comes onto the scene, he starts performing miracles, and the rumors start to build. Hey man, have you heard about that guy in Galilee? Like he's doing crazy stuff. He's turning water into wine. Everyone's like, yeah, awesome. Best upgrade ever. He feeds the 5,000. Everyone's like, that's the kind of guy we want. Never-ending food, water into wine. You see where this is going? They're like, this is awesome. 
We don't have to work. He performs miracles where he raises those who can't walk. He heals the blind. He makes the deaf to hear. Things are happening and people are continually talking about, is this the one? Is this the guy who finally is going to fulfill the promise to our nation and liberate us from Roman rule? And I believe that's exactly why every time something happened and the crowd started to grow with anticipation, Jesus was like, no, it's not my time. This isn't what I'm about. It's actually not about this nation-state dynamic. My kingdom is very different. I'm going to come to usher it in in a way you don't expect. And so this is the, the context when we get to the very end here, the final week. And this week, pre, it's, it's the week in, in Jewish custom where they would all typically make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe Passover. So think about the political dynamics of this as many, many, many Jewish people in the Jewish state under Roman occupation make this trek into Jerusalem. It's believed by some scholars that the, the population of Jerusalem would increase by about you know, five-fold. So it's about 200,000 people. It could, it could be filled with as many as a million people. So it's a lot like graduation weekend here in Ithaca, where, where suddenly out of nowhere, thousands of people that don't really live here show up. And it's like, wow, the traffic's actually really bad. You know, and, and it's never really bad. I mean, it's a little Ithaca, but it's the same idea, like move-in weekend or graduation weekend. We experience the pilgrimage of America where people come to Cornell to pay homage to higher learning. And, and so, yeah, that's a whole nother sermon. Um, and for those of you who live locally, like when summer's here, we're just like, where'd everybody go? Um, so, so think about the, like, the, the, the political dynamics, right? Um, uh, we'll, we'll start to get into the narrative here. Go with me to John chapter 11, um, because John 11 is kind of going to give us a little bit of a launching point for examining this uh, first day of Passion Week. And John chapter 11 is, is Jesus' um, sort of final miracle before the miracle of his own death and resurrection, in which he foreshadows that in a very specific way by raising Lazarus from the dead. Right, so if, if you are a kind of person who believes in like, you know, literary signals, right, you're reading a novel and you have a foreshadowing moment, this was a very clear foreshadowing. Jesus shows up, his friend Lazarus is dead, he raises Lazarus from the dead, declares, I'm the resurrection in the life, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life, and this happens very shortly before this final week of his, his earthly ministry. And so in John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead, uh, and you look with me in John eleven forty five. 45. <clears throat> it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Significant that you note this as you study the scriptures. The religious leaders of Jerusalem, part of the motivation for them opposing Jesus was not strictly on theological grounds. They did believe he was a blasphemer, and they did believe he was misinterpreting scripture and falsely claiming to be God, and they hated him for that. But a part of their motivation was they were trying to keep the national peace in their view. 
And they're like, if we allow Jesus to come into Jerusalem on Passover week, when there's going to be like a million people here, and there is a tremendous amount of religious fervor and an appeal of the people to this sense of their hopes as a nation, what's also true is the Romans were not unaware of the schedule of the Feast of the Jews, and they knew this was a very high holy day, and they were already a little nervous. If you're trying to control a group of people, and they all of a sudden all congregate at a place that they highly regard, and they have an intense amount of religious zeal during that week, you become a little nervous. Like, are we going to have a revolt? Are we going to have uh, a revolution on our hands? Are they going to throw off Roman rule? And so the religious leaders are here. They're seeing the energy of the people starting to rise around Jesus after the raising of Lazarus. And they get together in like a, I envision it like some like, you know, dark smoky room at a bar and grill. And they're in the back eating some falafel. And they're just like, what are we going to do, man? This is like this Jesus guy. And so they start to plot and plan, and they rightly identify that there is a concern. If Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and people get whipped up into national fervor and start to create a revolution, the Roman army will come in and smack them down. That is absolutely what would happen. If you look at a map of the way Jerusalem was structured at that time, the Romans built a fortress right next to the Temple Mount, because they knew when stuff happens, it happens here. And so we better put some military presence to control what's happening. And so they identify this concern. And if you look at their concern there in verse 48, their concern was with their own place. It was with their place and with their nation. Like, what's going to happen to us if this Jesus comes in here and starts to change things? If you skim down with me, you look at verse 55. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Will he come to the feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. We're going to begin looking at the record of this moment. If you skim with me down, down to chapter 12, looking in verse 9. We get through the final moments there where Jesus is anointed at uh, Mary and Martha's house house in Bethany, and now he begins uh, to prepare to come to Jerusalem. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I mean, that's tough. Jesus raises you from the dead, and everyone's like, we're going to kill you again. You're like, I just got out of this situation. But it shows you the, frame, the framing of the mind, right? These people had a very real disposition of seeking to thwart the actions of Jesus. They were motivated theologically from a religious perspective. They were concerned about their own authority and the presence of the people, right? This is a big day for the, for the Pharisees too, right? The whole nation's coming to the temple and looking to them for spiritual guidance and spiritual direction. And if this rogue preacher from Galilee comes in and starts doing stuff, it makes them look bad. So they don't like Jesus on that reason. They're concerned there's going to be turmoil at the Temple Mount. The Romans are going to get involved. There's a lot of pressure. Jesus is fully aware of all of this, by the way. He's absolutely 100% aware of all of this. We know that because all throughout his life, he kept telling everybody, now's not the, it's not the time. This isn't the time. He came into Jerusalem multiple times in his life, and he just walked in. We don't call that the triumphal entries of Jesus. 
It's a singular event, the triumphal entry of Jesus. If you remember the first time Jesus went into Jerusalem after his earthly ministry began, after the miracle in Cana, he went into Jerusalem and he made a whip of cords. And he started to just clear out the temple area. And he blasts the religious leaders in that moment. He's like, you have made my father's house a house of thieves and robbers. And, the, and, he, and he cleans house. And so he's been to Jerusalem multiple times. Never at any point in those times do we see the, the gospel writers indicating any uniqueness to his comings and goings in and out of Jerusalem. But in this particular moment, the beginning of this event, this hour that has finally come for Jesus, uh, he, there's something very unique and dif- distinct about this. If you would uh, look with me in uh, just a little bit ahead to set context here, in John chapter 12, look in verse 23. Multiple times Jesus said, my hour had not yet come. But now here we are in the, on this Sunday as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And Jesus answered them and he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Look with me again in John chapter 12, verse 27. It says, Jesus praying, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour indicating this is the time. Look in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And finally, look with me in John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. there is a shift happening. And it is the preeminent signal for those in that moment, in that culture, at that specific time, that something significant was transpiring before them. And now, although we weren't there, through the witness of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of His Word, it's also a signal for you and for me that there's something remarkable being displayed in this event. And so we'll read it, and then we'll explore some of its uh, meanings and implications. So in verse 12 of chapter 12, the triumphal entry, this is the hour, it has begun. Jesus is aware, he knows everything that's happening around him, he knows everything that's happening from the direction of his heavenly father, he knows the purpose for his coming, and the reason why he's here. And he knows that this is his time. And so it says the next day, which is the next day after he left the house of Mary and Martha, he honored the Sabbath there, and now he's moving into the first day of the new week. It's a Sunday. It says the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd 
that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said one to another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What's the significance? Why this moment over any other moment to be so recorded by all the gospel accounts and to um, be zeroed in on so specifically um, by the Holy Spirit? And I believe it's because of what is fulfilled in this event. In every other instance where Jesus performed a miracle or something occurred, the people around him wanted to kind of put him up on their shoulders like a victorious champion and carry him forward as their hero, right? We want to make Jesus our hero, our king. We want to make him our, you know, miraculous Messiah, if you will. And in each one of those instances, Jesus is like, not the time, I'm not about that. But in this particular instance, one of the interesting and remarkable things is Jesus chose to ride in on a donkey. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't happen circumstantially. The other gospel uh, records of this event, um, John doesn't give as much detail, but Matthew does. Matthew says this in Matthew 21.1. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall simply say, the Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. And, he t- and Matthew records this in verse 4 and 5. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It was specific fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus sent his disciples in ahead of him and said, find me a donkey. Because Jesus knew what Zechariah wrote in Zechariah chapter 9. He knew, and it was to be a signal to his people, that when the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel, came into the city, he would come riding on a donkey. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's creating a giant neon signal of this is the king. It's me. In all those previous instances, it wasn't the time or the moment But in this particular instance, Jesus is doing this so that his audience would recognize him for who he truly is. He's the king. And not just a king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the reason that's interesting is when you look at Jesus' life, he never once set foot in the palace. He never walked in Jerusalem and then walked into the palace claiming the throne. He was only dragged there when when they they tried him under false false pretext so they could kill him. But in every other instance in which Jesus comes into Jerusalem, where does he hang out? Hangs out in the temple. Jesus wasn't after the throne of Israel, because that would be beneath him. Because all authority comes from God. The authority of the king of Israel, that comes from him. The authority of the king of Rome, the you know, Nero, Caesar, whoever, comes from him. To try to claim the throne of man is beneath God. And so he never came for that. He was trying to draw our attention to something very different. That his kingdom is not a kingdom defi- defined by the borders of a nation state. His kingdom is from God eternal. and It's for all who will enter in by the way he provides. And so he he does this action of riding in on a donkey 
specifically to fulfill scripture, specifically to have us understand he is truly God's son. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. When you look at how this is understood, as Jesus is coming in, everybody's freaking out. They're screaming, Hosanna, which means save now. God, God save. They're expecting this sense of deliverance. They're expecting, in a lot of ways, what they think is about to happen is Jesus is going to unite everybody and they're going to kick some Roman butt. And we kind of know that because all of his disciples just a few days earlier were like, hey, when we're taking over Israel, can you give me like a really good position in government because I think I'm a pretty cool guy, right? They're literally arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're not thinking spiritually. They're thinking politically. They're like, Jesus is invincible. He can raise the dead. He can literally raise up an army of people who can never be killed. He can make food appear out of nothing. He can turn water into wine. They're basically like, this guy's, this guy's legit. And we're like part of his inner sanctum. So that makes me connected to the legit guy. I'm, I want power. I want a great situation. Interestingly enough, John's honest enough in his own writing. And in verse 16 of chapter 12, he's like, hey, his disciples did not understand this at first. I appreciate the honesty of the gospel writer. If I was writing about myself, I probably wouldn't have written for all of history that I misunderstood one of the most significant uh, moments of the Son of God's life. But John was honest enough to say we actually didn't know what was going on. We actually didn't perceive what Jesus was doing. We actually didn't understand what the true nature of his kingdom was like. We missed it. I bring this up because in Luke's writing, there's an interesting sort of, um, sort of contrast. You would think in this moment that Jesus would be really excited, really happy. You know, everybody's acknowledging him. He's riding in on a donkey. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. He's about to enter into the, into the temple, and everybody's throwing their shirts and their, their robes down in front of them and the palm branches, and they're, they're basically exalting him, and, and they're acknowledging him. They're saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, you know, this is the king of Israel. It's like his moment of coronation, if you will. And you would think in that moment he'd be super pumped. You know, it's like the election party after they win. They, like, have the dance and the big celebration. But Jesus isn't doing that. Luke tells us that as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, he's weeping. Think about the contrast of experience there. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and all these people are, like, super psyched, he's weeping. Why is he weeping? Luke is the only one who records this. And what Luke records is that Jesus himself recognized they did not understand what was going on either. They didn't catch it. They didn't understand that what was about to happen was something spiritual and something heavenly. They thought, here comes our deliverer to cast off Roman oppression. And Jesus is like, oh, if you had only known the day of your visitation. Those were his words in Luke. And so Jesus is crying because he realizes literally in about five days, the same crowd that was like, Hosanna in the highest, behold the king of Israel, are going to be the same people before Pontius Pilate who are going to say, we won't have this man to rule over him, rule over us, crucify him. They literally will denounce him within five days because his kingdom was not what they wanted. He wasn't the king that they were expecting. And his kingdom was so different, they were offended by it. And then when they get to the end, they're out there chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And they even say, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. The same crowd, lacking understanding, lacking perspective, not necessarily catching the gravity of the moment, within five days are going to turn on him. And so Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, 
fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah, which is the fulfillment of the true kingship of God. And he recognizes there's people in the audience who just don't get it. And he knows that because they don't get it, they're going to reject him. And he knows that because they're going to reject him, they're going to seal their eternal fate. And I guess the point I want to make is simple, at least in, a, in an initial application. If you, um, one of the interesting comments that <clears throat> is made by Matthew as he records this event is as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and everybody's chanting, and there's this huge uproar. I mean, it's, it's massive. Jesus is literally a rock star. I mean, like his fame is, is huge. And he's doing stuff that obviously no one else can do. And so he's got a massive following and is creating a lot of commotion in the city. And Matthew records in, in his record of this, they says most of the crowd are spreading their cloaks out, they're cheering, they're doing all these things, and the crowd's going before him. And it says in verse 10 of Matthew's account that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? Who is it? Like in all the chaos and all just like the mob mentality of people just freaking out, there's a little bit of confusion, like who is this? And the crowd say, you know, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. At the same time, amongst this crowd, there's Pharisees saying, tell your disciples to stop saying this. All right, Luke records that for us. So some of, the, some, of the, some of the Pharisees are in the crowd at the same time screaming at the top of their lungs, rebuke your disciples, tell them to stop. And Jesus' famous reply, if they don't say it, the very rocks are going to cry out and declare it. And so when I step back, I guess... Initially, what I, what I believe needs to be set in terms of the tone and the direction of this, this moment in history of Jesus' life is he's coming in and he's establishing the true kingdom of heaven. He's ushering in the kingdom of heaven. And he's letting us know definitively from the fulfillment of scripture, from the fulfillment of the timing of his own life and ministry, that this is it. His kingdom is primarily heavenly. It's not the nation state. It's not fulfilled primarily through, uh, you know, a national identity, but it's fulfilled in our relationship with him by faith. And we know this because the conclusion of the week is the cross. It's the cross. And I can't steal Pastor Scott's thunder for next week because that would be really irresponsible of me, but it's really tempting to not want to just jump to the best part of the story in a way. Because it's the, it's, the, it's the act of ultimate victory over sin and death and hell and judgment and his victorious resurrection. But before we get there, there's something that has just been impressed on my heart. And I just want you to think about not just the whole narrative of time that I have belabored ad nauseum here, but also the order of events. Why is it that Jesus rode in on a donkey prior to going to the cross? And why not the other way around? Why not die on the cross first and rise again and then hop on the donkey and be like, I'm the king. Why come humbly on a donkey first? And I submit to you, it's because you can't have salvation without lordship. He's Lord. And he's Savior. Christ is not his last name. It's a title, and it means Messiah, anointed one. When they were screaming Hosanna, 
as he was entering Jerusalem, they were saying, you're the rightful king. You're the anointed one. In Greek, it would be, you're the Christ. And I submit to you, church, that there is no true salvation without lordship. You can't cherry pick the best part of what you want in the dynamic of your relationship with Jesus. See, they wanted a savior who was going to give them political freedoms, lower taxes. Some of us are like, let it be so, Lord. Lower taxes and an endless supply of prosperity. They were focused on the here and now, sort of regardless of the state of their internal affairs. But Jesus didn't come for that. He comes into Jerusalem. They, they are acknowledging him and allegedly coronating him as king. But he then walks into the temple and he looks around. And he's assessing the situation. And then he leaves for the night. And then he comes back in on Monday morning. And you know what he does? He starts trashing the temple in front of everybody. And he starts to just absolutely blast the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he, again, for the second time, he did it at the beginning of his ministry. And he did it at the end of his ministry. He calls them thieves and robbers and those who are desecrating true worship. Because he's establishing the reality that true spirituality is the goal of his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You enter into God's kingdom, not through, a, not through some sort of nation state, not through some sort of militant pursuit, but through humbling yourself at the foot of the cross and acknowledging his lordship, because he's lord before and he's lord after the cross. The cross is our way to come under his lordship without judgment. It is his mercy, because he was king well before he showed up in John chapter 12. He just let everybody know in John chapter 12. He didn't earn the right to be king. He always was. He always had the authority. And he was helping us know, I'm king. And this is my universe. Why would the rocks cry out? Because the basis of his authority wasn't just in the fact that a group of people in the Middle East had an ancient book that they thought was inspired by God. It's the very order of the universe. If they didn't acknowledge what was fundamentally true, the rocks themselves would say, this is the king. This is God. He's the one who rules over all. And because of our unwillingness to yield to his authority, we call that by definition sin. And that's what separates us from him. And so in his mercy, then he goes to the cross and then he comes out resurrected, victorious over it all. And so he establishes the basis of his kingdom on this and this alone. It's his primary purpose. Interestingly enough, he came on a donkey and he came humbly. If you're curious what happens in the final analysis, read the book of Revelation. He comes on a war horse with eyes like flames of fire, with a vesture dipped in blood, and on his thigh it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. There is a final judgment. There is an ultimate conclusion to the arc of justice throughout history. And so Jesus comes in, and he's inviting us to embrace his lordship that we might experience his forgiveness. Those who truly acknowledge him as, as Lord will always also acknowledge him as Savior because they recognize, apart from his merciful grace and allowing me to enter into relationship with him i cannot be a part of his kingdom jesus asked a really compelling question to his disciples prior in his ministry and it was because people around town were talking about him and jesus turned to them and said hey who do you say that i am and his basic question is like who am i to you and so i would submit to you who is jesus to you literally right now this morning who is jesus to you he came in, and there was a whole mix of perspectives in that crowd. 
people with a mis, mis, misapplied understanding of what Jesus was about, people with a wrong motivation of what they want Jesus to be for them, and there was probably just a very small handful of people who really grasped the significance of the spiritual moment. And so I'm just asking, and I've asked this of myself this morning, and I'm asking it of you, like, who is Jesus to you? Is he someone in your life that you hope is there for you in your bad moments, who kind of cleans you up when you make some bad mistakes, but by and large functions so that you can experience your best life now? He's there to kind of give you bread when you're hungry, give you something really great to drink when you're kind of run low. You turn to him in your moments of sadness and sorrow. But generally speaking, he's in a He's an, a, an appendage of an extra piece of your life. He's not central. He's not Lord. He's not king. He's just there to be a convenient outlet when you need something good to happen. You're looking for some positive vibes in your life. And so you're like, I'm going to come to church because positive vibes come out of church. And let me go hang out with these kind of Jesus-y people because they seem generally happy all the time. And maybe I can get a little bit of that in my, excuse me, in my life. And so you're pursuing sort of religion or you're pursuing Christ in the, in, the, in the sense that you're looking for him to make your dreams come true. You're looking for him to fulfill your hopes and expectations for what you want your life to be. And if that's the basis of your relationship with Jesus, I think you need to reevaluate that basis. Because we weren't created so that he could serve us, but we were created for his good pleasure and the question is not, God, make my hopes and dreams come true. The question is, God, let your purposes be fulfilled in my life. What is your purpose and plan for why I'm here? What's your purpose and plan for my future, Lord, and how will you be glorified through me? That's lordship. We come under him. We don't make him subservient to us. And so this is, this is the stage by which Jesus walks through the final week of his life uh, prior to death and resurrection, um, establishing the true essence of his kingdom. And we can kind of know that they missed the mark because when he was standing trial before Pilate and Pilate's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? His answer to him was, my kingdom is not of this world because if it was, my followers would be fighting for it right now. And so the question is the question of his kingship. It's of his lordship. And so I'm asking you, is Jesus Lord of your life? Have you, have you at any point in time truly considered the significance of his life and the claims of the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? And apart from his intervention by grace, we are eternally separated from the Father forever. And to reject the offer of salvation, to reject Jesus as he is, not as we want him to be, but as he is in the word, is to live in judgment. And so if you've never considered these things, there is not just me, but there is an abundance of people in this room who I believe have considered this for themselves and have sought to yield their life to Jesus' lordship and his offer of salvation. And if you haven't considered that, maybe the person who brought you here would be a great person to chat with about it. Secondly, if you have submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ and you do have a walk with Jesus, I find it compelling that the first act that he did after coming back as king was to cleanse the temple a second time. Housekeeping. Jesus desires our love above all else. 
There is no portion in Scripture where he is more pointed about what he desires than in this final week of his life. He commits to explaining to his followers the seven woes to the Pharisees. And in each instance, he is attacking the religious exterior of who are considered to be the most spiritual people in the whole world. And he's like, these people are externally righteous, and inside there is nothing but death, deceit, greed, arrogance. their, Their motivation is that they are seeking the glory of man and not the glory of God. And so Jesus cleanses the temple because he's indicating to those of us who are seeking to walk with him, I believe, he's indicating to us that there is a need for us to acknowledge and have God search out our own heart and identify, Lord, is there areas in my life where you're not truly functioning as Lord because I got my own thing going? There's people in the temple who are making a profit off of the devotion of others, and Jesus was abhorred by such a practice. It's easy to ridicule the Pharisees. It's easy to, you know, kind of make them the foil to Jesus' life. But I think all too often there's a little bit of Pharisee in some of us. I know there can be in me. You know, the exterior all looks so great. Nobody would really know deep down inside whether God is truly the love of the life, whether there's truly lordship there. But Jesus wants to clean house. He wants to allow the new wine to come into a new wineskin, man. He wants to refresh the relationship. And so I just suggest perhaps if you, in your own heart of hearts, maybe take a little inventory and say, man, if Jesus walked through the inner sanctum of your spirit, of your heart and of your mind, if Jesus took a stroll inside your inner life, and Jesus came walking into the quote-unquote proverbial temple of your heart, what would he find there? What would he discover? I mean, the reality is nothing's hid from his eyes anyway, so he already knows what's there, but it's sort of a rhetorical question. If Jesus was walking on the inside, walking into your heart, what would he find? And man, if there's anything there, you cringe a little and go, hope he doesn't look around the corner of that room. That's the Holy Spirit saying, man, you got to address that. you got to repent. And let the Lord be Lord of your life. So uh, I belabored the point. Let's stand together. Let's pray. And let's just acknowledge Jesus uh, as Lord here this morning. Okay. Father God, we just thank you so much, Lord, for the record of your word. God, I perhaps I'm the only one who geek out about weird statistics about the Bible, but it's just so impressive to me that Almost a third of the entire record of your life is devoted to these seven days. God, you're signaling to us that you want us to really pay attention. You want us to put so much weight and significance on these things that we might be, Lord, maybe perhaps refreshed again with the significance of what you accomplished. Lord, if it's a new study for some, Lord, I pray that you would use it to enrich their faith and draw them to yourself. Lord, if there's anyone here who's really never truly considered you as Lord and Savior. Jesus, I just pray that you would do what you've promised to do, that you draw them into yourself as you're lifted up. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do your work of conviction and you would cause those in this room who may need to, to consider their own eternal relationship with you. And then God, for those of us who are already in your family, we're a part of your kingdom, Lord, we recognize we're not always walking the way we should. And sometimes you've got to come and you've got to address things in our own hearts. And so, Lord, I pray now is our time of fellowship, our time of hanging out together. Um, As you lead, God, 
There might be opportunity for confession and for repentance, Lord, for prayer and strengthening one another as we seek to live a life more honoring to you. Uh, God, we just thank you so much. We look forward to celebrating you throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless.